In a new book written by Dr. Alicia Moreland Capuya, she uses her work with young people in the Multnomah County juvenile justice system to focus the role of improving the health of individuals while creating positive system change. It's Tuesday, July 23rd, and this is OHSU Week. I'm Josh Anderson. And I'm Lisa Carter. Josh, thanks once again for filling in for Patrick. Always happy to help. Before we get to this week's interview, let's review some of the news highlights over the past week. Well, late last week, the AFSCME Union unilaterally declared impasse in contract negotiations with OHSU. You can read more about what this means and next steps in the process on OHSU Now. OHSU announced it'll be the presenting sponsor of the Portland Marathon, which takes place October 6th. And for all of you runners out there, you can participate on Team OHSU and save $10 on your registration fee. Are you a marathon runner, Josh? Well, I'm a runner, but just not a marathoner. I'm Mm. more of an afternoon runner. I find that most marathons start way too early for my liking. (laughs) I understand. Well, last week, we also posted the next video in the Stumptown Survivalist series. This one focuses on the furry members of your family by sharing tips on how to keep your pets safe in a disaster and what you can do now to prepare. Stumptown Survivalist is one of my favorites. Yeah, mine too. We also want to make sure that everybody is aware that Reach Now announced they are no longer operating in North America. This was a recent partnership that provided fleet cars for employees to use between South Waterfront, Markham Plaza, and Markham Hill. They will be missed. Yeah, I was disappointed to hear that. I actually used that service a few times and found it really convenient. I bet, yeah. So good to hear that transportation and parking is looking for a replacement. Definitely. And now to our main interview. Aaron Hoover Barnett, Director of Communications in the School of Medicine, spoke with our guest about a comprehensive new textbook she wrote about trauma-informed practices. We are excited today to get to speak with Dr. Alicia Moreland Capuya on her new book, Training for Change, Transforming Systems to be Trauma-Informed, Culturally Responsive, and Neuroscientifically Focused. Dr. Moreland Capuya, thank you for joining us today. If you would start out by telling us, why did you write this book? Well, it was about 10 years of working in multiple systems, um, whether it was a community behavioral health organization, working in schools, working with families. It was very clear that there was a consistent theme that continued to come up, that everyone was sort of talking around. It was, we really want to change, but we don't know how. And also, that the things that were preventing folks from moving towards change included things like trauma. And there was a lot of lack of understanding of what it was. And so I thought, I've got this really huge love for teaching. I love the brain and how it works. I have some understanding of what trauma is and how it may manifest itself in communities and families and ways. So what if I combine those interests and started training? So it actually started about 10 years ago with me putting together trainings that just simply talked about the intersection of fear and trauma and what that meant for particular communities. People started to resonate with it to say, wow, I wish I had learned this years ago because it would have changed my perspective or how I did this or how I do things now. And then more specifically, um, once the trainings were being done, I was called on by the Department of Community Justice here at Multnomah County that said, we understand that you've been doing this work and we've got a supervision model uh, that we would really like to impact for change. And this supervision model has been pretty good at getting us some of the outcomes we want, but it hasn't done everything that we wanted it to do. We think that it can be stronger if we 
thought more about how the brain develops, what the ro- what role trauma plays in that process, and uh, what we can do different. And so I started the process of doing the training with them, and that 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 training and those changes resulted in us being able to reduce the likelihood that young males of color between the age of 15 and 25 went back to prison. So we reduced incarceration rates. We were able to actively help them engage with with education. We were able to actively help them get back into uh, the community and with their families. And what we understood very clearly is that a lot of the systems that we operate in, whether it's healthcare, education, even families, that there are what I call top brain expectations and mandates, but the, the, the folks who engage with those systems are actually bottom brain living. And so there's a disconnect. You want me to be operating from the top part of my brain, which is the more rational, thoughtful, exercising good judgment, but I'm in complete and utter survival which is the bottom part of my brain. And there's a disconnect between those two things. So how do we help the system understand what it's mandating and help the individual who's seeking support from the system to understand what's happening and why it's not, why they're not able to engage effectively with that particular system. And maybe those two worlds can meet. And so that was sort of the inspiration for the work um, initially is understanding that there was a huge mismatch, that there wasn't an empathy gap, there was an understanding gap. And that if I could feel that, that maybe we could get to a place where change could happen. Can you give us um, even a composite example of a young man and the difference, sort of what that young man might have experienced before you showed up um, with your knowledge and what he might experience now so that people can understand when you say trauma, we're not just talking about, oh, you know, you bumped your head. Um, it's more systemic in mm-hmm. some cases. Can you just explain mm-hmm. the before and the after to help people understand what trauma-informed care really means? Sure. Well, it's more than just the care. I think it's become trauma-informed care has become sort of a buzzword. It's really practices and approaches. So one particular example, and I work with young males who have been entangled with the law, and I want to be very careful how I use the language because I believe that words matter and how we describe folks either gives opportunity for them to change or not, interestingly enough. So individuals who have been entangled with the law are more likely to have experienced uh, poverty, uh, to have experienced at some point racism, to have at some point not been able to get the best education for various reasons, have at, at, may have had someone in their family who have ex- had experienced at one point their own experiences with the legal system. There may have been issues with substance use disorders, and there also may have been issues with mental health uh, problems. It's not everybody, but for the most part, what we can uh, actively and should be actively thinking about are the experiences that folks have early on in their lives that potentially change their trajectory. Um, And so with the young folks that I was working with within the Department of Community Justice, they'd come in and initially parole officers would be working with them and there was a very specific sort of expectation that they could come in and do the supervision and follow all of the rules and do all of the homework. 
there was an expectation. There's many expectations in that. The expectation is, or the assumption is that they could read. The assumption is that they could understand what they're being asked. The assumption was that they weren't operating from a place of fear, that they could focus and concentrate. And what I came in to share with the parole officers is that that might be the wrong assumption. We're not able to get to the change we want because we haven't created safety. Creating safety for these young people means considering the fact that they may not understand what they're being asked to do. They may not have eaten, they may, not, they may be hungry, they may be tired, they may be afraid because there's a power deferential, and you're asking me to do cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a mandate, but I'm busy here trying to figure out how to calm down, right? So there's a mismatch. I can't do what you're asking me to do. I'm not gonna be able to meet the outcomes until we get to a place where we create safety and you've considered that all of these other things may be at play. So a very real active example, right now here in Multnomah County, we have parole officers who do mindfulness exercises before they even start supervision sessions with their supervisees, right here in Multnomah County. That's a direct consequence of my training and them understanding that there are other things at play that there is a change that has to happen before the change. If you really want to get to change, safety has to be established and created first. And it's as simple as understanding that life for others is, is not the same for, 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 for you and that there are conditions that preclude someone from being able to do it right now, not ever, but right now in this moment. So that's one example. Another example is that we've got parole officers who provide food and clothes for the families that come in to see them. So we're meeting a basic need, right? So now I can more likely engage with you if I'm not hungry. If I've considered the fact that you're sleepy, I'm, I'm not really gonna have you doing thinking modules with me if your thinking is very cloudy because legitimately you're tired. So there are all these sort of basic things uh, that I would say as specific examples uh, that we've been able to see a change. And as a consequence of that, they've been able to get better outcomes and people are more engaged and they're able to get folks uh, into the places and spaces in which they want, you know, wanted them to go initially, which has been great. Because prior to that, if if you aren't using trauma-informed practices, you are exacerbating the problem many times because then the young person is not able to engage or do what they're being asked to, and it then looks like defiance and poor behavior that leads to more adjudication that leads to a cycle. It, it could be. It's a, it, again, it's an understanding gap. So if to the extent that we give you a new understanding and a new frame and a new way to look at what you perceive as deviant behavior is the extent that we help people heal. And a lot of the work was around helping the people attached to the systems heal as well, because I don't believe that an unhealed person can facilitate healing. So it was, I'm putting a mirror up to you system and the people within the system saying, what is it that's happening within the context of what you're doing that may be contributing as well? So it's not an issue of just, uh, I've helped many systems and the people within systems see that it's not just about other. I'm also talking about you. So my healing is intimately attached to yours. My ability to be well is intimately attached to yours. And so to the extent that I'm able to do the work, recognize my own triggers and even trauma, everybody has it, whether that they want to engage in it or not, to the extent that I can do that, then we get to a place where we're all better. And it, it's a fascinating process. We just came back from Harvard University uh, literally two weeks ago. This was uh, We've been invited to this conference for two years in a row. 
because of the outcomes that we've gotten as a result of the work that I've been doing with the parole and probation officers at Harvard Law School and the Federal Judicial Center has said, thank you, and can we have more, and can we learn more about this approach? Because this is what we need in terms of not just juvenile justice reform, but, but criminal justice reform. How do we treat people the better? I was listening to something the other day, when you are innocent, you want justice, but when you're guilty, you want mercy. And what we're asking for, what I'm asking systems for, is when it's your child, you want mercy. When it's somebody else's child, you want justice. And I'm saying, let's, let's treat everybody as though that it was your child. Can we extend mercy? Can we bring back concepts of grace? Can we think about things, as opposed to rehabilitation, can we think about habilitation? Because rehabilitation makes the assumption that folks had a set of skills, that they got everything that they needed at the beginning. And I think that that is not a fair assumption. I think we have to focus on, once I have you within the context of, of my presence, what can I do, what can I offer to help give you the skills that you need to ensure your success moving forward? So it literally is a shift and a reframe. It's a cultural shift uh, that many people are welcoming. And all of that, what I've described, is part of what it means to be trauma-informed in your practices and your approaches. It's, it's applying a different lens and doing something different as well. If you could talk a little bit about fear and the, the neurobiology of fear that you were starting to describe, um, how that plays out and affects the ability for people to heal. Sure. So the first question I typically pose to folks is, I don't think that there's anybody in humanity who hasn't experienced fear, who hasn't been afraid. And we know what that's like when, when the way that I've described it and many people describe it differently is it's sort of like watching a scary movie. And, you know, I used to watch Freddy Krueger. And when you watch those movies, you always see the character who is running from a said threat, right? In this case, it's Freddy Krueger. They've got the keys in their hands. They're getting to the door. And the question I typically ask is, what happens to those keys? They typically drop the keys. They don't get the keys in the lock. And we're yelling at this, you better pick up those keys. But the reality is that this is fear in, in, in its greatness. Because when you're in a fear-laden state, it turns out that the part of the brain that's required for you to get the key in the lock is not working. That's the top part of your brain. That's where all those sophisticated motoric actions come from. But when you're afraid, you're not going to get the key in the lock because you're surviving your bottom brain living. And so when I discuss fear, I give that example to say that that is essentially what we have, not just in the context of the criminal justice system, but in most systems. We have folks who are running from Freddy Krueger. That's literally their reality. 24 seven, 365 days of the year. So if you can understand, I'm saying to folks, if you understand what it's like to be that afraid all the time, then maybe, maybe, just maybe, you could get how the approach has to be different, how there has to be a drive and a desire to create safety in order to get someone back to the, the ability to like be able to be calm enough to get that key in the lock, right? That's the goal. And so most people can get that. They may not get everything else, but they get that fear things because we've all experienced it. And you're not doing calculus and you're not doing uh, you know, sophisticated calculations when you're trying to survive. And we've got a number of people, whether it's in the workplace, we have colleagues, we have cousins, we have your friends who are all running from Freddy Cougar. 
And so if our goal, because I think if, if every system was trauma-informed, the world would be a better place. That's my goal. It's like if, 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 if everyone could just get this thing and understanding that fear that's on all of the time. So if I got Freddy Krueger running after me all the time and it never turns off and everything feels like Freddy Krueger, that's trauma. That's trauma. And to the extent that we can quell that, which there are specific techniques and things to do that, then we help people get to a safer place and function better. So you have felt um, very driven and motivated to share this message, and, and I assume that is why you've written this book. Um, what are your hopes for the book? How did you approach the book in order to make it accessible? So my approach was, if I had one opportunity, this was my last dying wish, and I had one message that I can leave to the entire world, what would it be? And how would it, how would it motivate people towards something? Because I don't really like, I don't do it for my health. I do it because I want something to change, right? At the end of the day, I want someone to be able to pick it up and say, wow, that makes sense, and this is how I can do it. And so it, the book is written based on this basic premise that systems are intimately attached to people and that systems change when people change and that people change when they feel something. And so the book is written with that basic premise. And so every example, I take the time to explain the neuroscience and the neurobiology of fear in a way that anybody who picks it up, every lay person, because if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, if you're a community member, if you're a curious, just human being who wants to know how the body is, has, has, and the brain comes together, the book is for you. If you're a, you know, a college professor, if you're, you know, if, if you're a spouse, I mean, there are many, many things. I feel like everyone can get and understand trauma, but not everyone. I feel like we've spent a lot of time talking about trauma, but we haven't spent a lot of time talking about, okay, so what do you do about it? And the book is really focused on that piece, the what do you do about it? What can a system do about it? And when I talk about a system, I'm literally talking about people. What can people do about it to improve the conditions for everyone? So the, the, the book is written from that particular perspective. It's approachable. It's interesting. It piques the interest. And it also is attached to something tangible and very palatable. Um, and the goal is when you understand it, we increase the risk of changing it. So that is the whole basis uh, of the book, and it challenges the, the status quo. It talks about systems. I think people get intimidated when you think about a system because it's like, well, how am I supposed to change that? That's colossal. But what the book does is it breaks down the fact that systems are attached to people, and real, the real work is the people work, and that's in everyone's domain. Everyone can, everyone can impact another person. So I believe from that particular standpoint, it's, I, I really hope, I, I really hope that, uh, that, it, that it does well and that people pick up the book and that they actually use it because it actually will make a difference. Is there anything else that you feel is important for your listeners to understand about your book and your hopes? Again, I hope that folks will pick it up will actually read it. Uh, every word was intentional. Every chapter builds on another. Uh, and there are very practical examples of, of things that can be done. And the, the work is a culmination of all of the training that I've done that's actually made changes. So 
there recently here in Oregon, Senate Bill 1008 um, passed, which is a historic set of juvenile justice reform bill. And I work very closely with the Oregon Judicial Resource Center and very closely with the um, Civil Rights, the Commission on Civil Rights, who wrote the initial report. And it's interesting, when you take what you know and you use it for good, it actually can make a world of change. What, what Lou Frederick, Senator Lou Frederick will tell you is that what drove Senate Bill 1008 was or the Oregon Senate's understanding or willingness to understand the neuroscience of the brain and culpability. And I'm proud to say that I played a huge role in that of educating our Oregon legislature. And they took that knowledge. They may not, under, again, you may not understand social determinants of health, and but people can understand the brain and development and potential threats to it. And it, it drove that legislation, uh, which provides now second looks for Measure 11 for mandatory sentencing, which I believe is inhumane. I don't believe that. I believe that we have a moral obligation to support young people and their ability to be well, to get well, and to contribute to society at some point, and that humanity and accountability don't have to be in direct opposition to one another. So very proud of that. Um, and there are a number of examples of how the work and the training has resulted in policy changes, has resulted in systems changes. Um, Department of Community Justice and their team has changed. But this is a book, again, that's written for any system that is open and willing uh, to change and that wants to change for the better and that wants to be sensitive to the fact that we all uh, are living a life and life is beautiful and it's hard. Um, and what our goal is, is from one human being to another is to help folks find ways to peaceably coexist with that reality and to navigate that space. This book gives not only the knowledge but the tools of how to do that in any system, literally any system, from a Fortune 500 company to a healthcare system to a school to a, a juvenile justice system can benefit from what from the content of the of all 377 pages which should be read in its entirety you cannot miss a word because because there is a very clear beginning middle and end so i i encourage people to pick it up uh, to read it and to really employ the the lessons Thank you for sharing your work and your passion and look forward to the, the much improved world that you describe because of, of your work. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Erin. Appreciate it. OHSU Week is a production of Strategic Communications. This episode was produced by Erin Hoover-Barnett and edited by me. I'm Josh Anderson. And I'm Lisa Carter. See you next week.